0: Welcome to Be With Champions, I'm your host Greg Bennett and today I have one of the most entertaining and inspiring conversations I think I've had on this show with Tim Don. Tim is just such a colourful and energetic storyteller and boy does he have some great stories. He, he describes in detail the the pain that he suffered um, wearing the halo that he had to wear after breaking his neck three days before the Kona Ironman World Championships in 2017. He also just goes into detail when he won the, the brazil iron man in 2017 earlier that year and, and broke the world record and went seven hours and 40 minutes and just what it took to do that and what his mindset was both pre-race and during that race just incredible there are just a couple of stories that he shares. He goes into detail how he got into the sport and some really fun, colourful stories along the way. Tim and I share quite a pass. We raced each other many, many times. So we do have a bit of banter and a bit of a laughter um, throughout the show. So you have to excuse me if I, if I laugh too much at times. Um, but I, I just simply love this chat. Before you go on... Um, if you want to go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media, there you can find the timestamps, show notes, coupon codes, and, and, and links. Um, please sh- share and subscribe. You'd be doing me a huge favor with that. Let's really try and get this show out there. Um, you know, All the support I can get, I'd really appreciate it. And finally, please keep the feedback coming, whether that's on iTunes um, or on the social media platforms. I really, really appreciate that Um if you want to you can go to instagram greg bennett world my twitter is greg bennett one and then i'm just greg bennett on facebook or on linkedin or you can just leave some feedback on itunes which i do read it and i do really appreciate it anyway what a wonderful man this guy is an incredible athlete mr tim don i hope you enjoy it as much as i did before we start i've got to give a quick shout out to the brands that make this show possible The only brands I'm working with are brands that provide products that I use daily and truly believe in. These products support my immunity, they help improve my recovery, and my focus. First up, my friends at Athletic Greens. I love this company, and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. I'm heavily focused on supporting my immunity and boosting my energy and helping my gut health, but I want to do it naturally. And I found that support with Athletic Greens, a whole food sourced green drink that tastes great and there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water. So there's no clumpiness to deal with. I can't believe a green drink sourced from Whole Foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I truly love it. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin c and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And there's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free daily travel packets with your first order. $79 added value. And get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This show is also brought to you by my friends at Hyperice. Some of these products I've been using for almost a decade. Makers of the award-winning Hypervolt, the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring Quiet Glide technology. Hyperice is a wellness tech company that makes devices designed to help you move better. From handheld massage devices to vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and the Normatec compression systems, Hyperice helps you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. Used in professional training rooms throughout the NBA, the NFL, MLB, the MLS, Ironman, and other professional organizations for well over a decade. Designed to help improve circulation, flexibility, and relieve tension. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at Hyperice.com. That's Hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E. And use code Greg10 for 10% off. All right, where do I start with this introduction? This man has been a fierce competitor, a peer, and a friend of mine for almost 20 years. He has an unbelievable resume of performances, which includes four world championship titles, three Olympic Games, and a world record in the Ironman of seven hours, 40 minutes, and 23 seconds. But this is only a part of this man's journey. Three days prior, to the 2017 Kona Ironman World Championships, where he was a heavy favourite. He was struck by a car and broke his vertebrae in his neck. His process in dealing with this incredible setback and his journey back to the top of the world is, is truly one of the most inspiring stories I think you'll ever hear. And I'm delighted to just have on the show one of my favourite people on the planet, a great personality in the endurance sporting world. Welcome and thanks for joining me on Be With Champions. Tim Don, how are you, mate?
1: Ah, uh, very well. Thanks, Greg. Lovely to to chat to you. It's been a long time, so yeah, it's always always good to have a have a catch up.
0: I know, mate. I I, I retired the sport in 2016. We we're all happy in Boulder training, and and you're there, and we're all kind of doing our thing. 2017, you go off, have the most amazing year from one extreme to the other, where you go to Brazil and you do, like I just said in the introduction, that that incredible Ironman of seven hours 40 minutes 23 seconds you then back it up with a, a third at the 70.3 worlds and then you decide to go break your neck and mate it's been an incredible last few years and I think the last time I saw you was probably 2016 I might have seen you briefly at some point during 2017 but mate a lot's happened
1: yeah it was definitely I mean 2017 was definitely a, a year of two halves it was um you know the big build-up the you know in the winter in Boulder um yeah, I had some good good races leading up to Brazil was the the, the main goal, and then obviously later in the year it, it was Kona. I decided to um, not focus on World 70.3s at all, but because it was in America, Chattanooga, it was you know it was it, it was easy to fly to Atlanta and drive up. Um, yeah, and then obviously, um, <laughs> yeah, my last easy ride before the race. Um, yeah, things didn't go didn't didn't go that well. Um, I remember coming to touching my collarbone, going, "Yes, it's not broken. I can still race."
0: <laughs> oh man! Yeah. So, so you were quite. You when you came to, you actually kind of felt kind of semi-normal. Did you? You know, um, you were able to consciously think so I, about your collarbone. I,
1: I remember. Um, I, I remember before the crash, I remember a white truck pulling in front of me and I skidded and I just put on my race tires. And I remember thinking, I'm going to get a flat spot I'm, and they're really hard to get on these <laughs> race tires. That was what was going Then it was about half an hour later, I came round and I know I'm going to regret saying this, especially on a, uh, um, with yourself. Is I've never broken a collarbone, touch wood. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, no, is this the time? And I was thinking, I'm going to race. The next thing I remember is waking up in the ambulance. So I was in and out. Um, yeah. I was actually lucky because there was um, apparently there was an Australian age group just behind me on the road and he was a doctor. So he was like, apparently, do not move him. Do not touch him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he saw the head on the, the, the fact my bike had collapsed head on and I kind of like rolled into the to the car with my neck, you know, my chin on my chest. You know, he said, no, don't, don't move him. So I was I was very lucky and fo- I was very fortunate. And no, I don't think luck's the right word. Fortunate that there was someone who knew what, what they were doing.
0: Mate, you're a glass half full kind of guy, aren't you? Talking about how fortunate you were <laughs> that the guy didn't move you after getting smashed by a car. When when you were when you were um before that happened, were you feeling like pretty good about the race in itself? I mean, you've been preparing for world titles and Olympic games and everything for you know half your life. Did this one feel like it was a was a special one, or, or how did you feel going into it?
1: Um. you know i learned over the years through i I, you know i've had a long career but i haven't done ironman that long and i learned a lot in brazil and um you know that the preparation is key and i'd had fantastic preparation on paper the numbers were were where they needed to do i could ride at 4.2 watts all day in a very aerodynamic position with having time to to run a a, a quality run my swimming was going great i was working with judy dibbins and matt bottrell um you know but you know yourself, you know, when you quali- didn't you qualify for Kona at High V, or was it World 70.3? <laughs> yeah, I, <didn't>, I, I have <laughs> like, got know, through it, a door. An- <laughs> <laughs> it's an animal, man. It is, Iron Man's an animal. So, yeah. you know, I always think it's arrogant to go to an Iron Man thinking and expecting you're going to win. Um, I believed I could fight for a podium. And, you know, the fact that the World 70.3 is genuinely unprepared. I got third and I was like the first of the Iron Man with obviously Javi winning again and Ben Canute stepping up one of the first big 70.3, you know, wins. And I was the first of the Iron Man guys um i i had the confidence and i was relaxed and calm but um yeah you never know you know there's oh man yeah such a such a brutal race let alone any ironman let alone kona but um yeah i'd have liked to have thought i would have been in 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 with the mix <laughs>
0: yeah no well that's just it i think half the battle just getting to these races without injury and everything and you mentioned Javier Gomez and when i had him on the show we both talked about how really the battle is to get to the start line, you know, and usually we're talking about niggling injuries or, you know, your health, your general health, making sure you don't have a cold or sickness. But, I mean, to be taken out as abruptly as you were sort of that that three days before it was really, it really shook the Ironman world. I think it shook all of us going, man, for, you know, first and foremost, you're alive, you know, you've got a young family and, and everything else. And But then what came next was really What was unique and very, very inspiring and special was you were flown back to the US, back to Boulder. I think
1: was it? That's right. Yeah, yeah, to Denver. Yeah, Boulder. Yeah, back.
0: Yeah. Now there was a decision to be made, right? So the decision was what? Take us through that.
1: Well, so yeah, I mean, so one of my good training partners and great friends, a guy called Dat Pat. pat mckinnon he had he'd been training with me all through you know the build and process we'd been on an altitude camp to color um steamboat springs he flew out to kona to support the jd crew and to learn and watch because he was stepping up and doing fantastic ironman he flew home the day before the race with me so he missed everything and he looked after me like a real champ we the only reason i could fly was because that we had an appointment with a specialist um So, yeah, we landed in in Denver. We went straight to um, Boulder Community Hospital and we saw Dr. V, Dr. Valesco, who is, I think, one of of five neurosurgeons for spinal and brain um, in the country. So he's a very... He hasn't got the greatest bedside manner, if I'm honest. He's very to the point, but damn, you know, he knows his stuff. I've, actually, I've dealt with him before in 2014. My daughter got ill and, and we used him. Well, we didn't use him. We, we, we got a second opinion from him. Um, yes, and he literally said, he came in and he said, you've got three, three options, but you've only got one. You can either have an aspen collar, which is like a neck collar. You can have it fused, where they fuse C2 and C3. Um, but the, or you can have a halo, but you have to have a halo. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, the soft collar, the, the, you know, with the kind of person you are, I know I've been, I've done Man's, you know, he's, a, he's an amateur uh, triathlete. He said, you're not going to stay still enough. There's going to be complications. If you have them fused, you're going to really limit your, your mobility in your neck. And you're going to want to carry on an active lifestyle and you will need another fusion in about 10 years, which is a much bigger operation. You have to have a halo. I said, yep. Yeah. I'm an, you're the expert. I'll have a halo. And then I was, I genuinely was like, what is a halo? Um, right. And then he described it and I was like, oh yeah, I've seen a movie about that. And then I was like, oh sugar, that was not the best movie, was it? Um, and um, yeah, he said, I said, so how do we do this? Let's, let's get it on. And he said, well, you know, the halo guys come in. I was like the halo guy. Um, he said, it'd be in an hour. I said, look, I haven't seen my wife for about a month. Can I go and see them? So literally Pat drove me home. Had a coffee with Kelly. Kelly says, "Oh, you don't look too bad." I said, "You know what? I'm, I know I'm on some meds, but I don't feel too bad." Um, I think that's the beauty about a broken bone is it's not. I'm yeah. not saying it's not painful, but you know, with a you know with ligaments, tendons, yeah. you know, disconnections, it is real painful. Um. yeah, and then I went back, this dude was there with a bow tie and he had like a hockey, hockey bag that Richie Cunningham travels all around the world with his bicycle in. <laughs> and he literally had all these halos in and they're measuring me up. And yeah, about half an hour later when the local anesthetic, um, yeah, they started drilling, drilling into my head.
0: <laughs> Jeez, just with local. So you're watching them with the drill. Oh man, I just, for those that don't know, type in a halo or whatever on, on Google, when you get a chance or, or even just go watch the man with the halo documentary, which I want to get to, but that was really quite extraordinary. So they have basically four bolts go straight into your skull.
1: Correct. And yeah, well, how'd it go? Yeah. Four titanium bolts. So they literally, they shave the back of my head um and they marked at the front um, and they literally get um, a torque wrench that we use for our, our very expensive bikes. And it's a titanium bolt with a very sharp point and there's they tighten a little bit on the left then the right that they have to do it equally otherwise it's going to pull tension Mm -hmm. and um, you'll appreciate this so they set the torque wrench to two newton meters and it clicks 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 and I'm like okay cool and they say we need to tighten it to eight newton meters and if you look on your seat post of your full suspension mountain bike it's only set to six and I was like I'm going, yeah, just do it, just do it. And, and I'm just saying, okay, have you done it yet? Can, can you go yet? And they're going, Tim, can you be quiet, please? Can you be quiet? We need to concentrate. And I'm going, okay, okay. And I'm just getting more more agitated and anxious. And every time we hit a new talk for, there's a big vibration. Then they start fixing this frame and the frame goes down to your belly button. And then by the end, about an hour or so later, I was like, oh, wow, I'm glad that's done. And they're like the two doctors and, uh, and Dr. V as well. Um, there were three of them, you know, um, fit, fitting it they were like, Oh my gosh, we've never done it so quick. Normally the person's unconscious because they're normally in a car accident. So we're doing it to someone unconscious. But secondly, the people that we have done it to, they're normally, you know, they have to walk around the room. They have to, you know, calm down and you just got it on. And I was like, if you'd have told me that I would have, I was just like, let's get it on. And I was like, God, how many of these do you guys do? And they said, in the Denver metropolitan area, I think we've done two in the last five years. And I'm, then I'm starting thinking, so you guys aren't experts at this. And they're like, no, 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 we are, we are, we are, we know what we're doing. <laughs> it was really, when I look back, it was a, like, but you know what, if I go to a doctor and I've got a sore throat, they'll look down it and say, you need antibiotics. I'm not going to question them. Do you know what I mean? You're just going to yeah. go, you're the expert. yep. Yeah. You know, when my coach says, you know, I've got, two by 40 minutes at sweet spot i will question it but you know when it comes when it comes to and i'll fight them for it but when it comes to medical things you know we are blinded by these people who thank goodness are very well trained
0: so were you able to keep you? i mean you, you you you're often very humorous you've always you're cracking jokes and you can make light of things pretty quickly that's just who you are were you able to was there an element of I'm um, kind of were you fearful? Were you scared and, and kind of overcompensating with a little bit of humor or, or were you really just like very matter of fact and just let it get
1: get it done No I, I mean absolutely. I guess that's maybe my coping mechanism. Um, oh, I'm the same mate. I I'm agree. the
0: same <laughs> so yeah. you, you know
1: talk, yeah. talk about anything but you know the elephant in the room, whether it's the race tomorrow or yeah. you yeah. know this um, no, there were definitely you know there were times yeah when it was uh, you know like as you said. It's just freaking crazy. You know, it's, it's a barbaric – think of modern technology. You know, you've got, you've got these rockets that are flying up and landing on floating, blooming barges, yet they're still screwing titanium bolts in your head. You know, it's so, like, yeah, like old school, like 16th century medieval kind of, you know, stuff. That Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I definitely think you – know, don't get me wrong. There were more than hundreds of times when it was very dark and, you know – When you know I I probably wasn't the the nicest person to to anyone that came in contact with me, especially in the first three weeks, because that's when the pain really hit me. And it wasn't the pain of the broken neck because it's it's like a plaster cast. You know, if you break your wrist, the plaster cast is there, and then that's fine because it's stabilizing the 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 radial the bone. But the plaster cast doesn't hurt you. But unfortunately for me, I had these four open screws that kept on. You know, they continually for three months just pussed and pussed and yeah you know yeah yeah my wife is is the one that should have the halo she's the saint <laughs>
0: uh, Seriously, i i think i even texted you at one point or or i don't know maybe it was on social media and i said how's kelly doing more importantly you know it was like i, I cuz i i mean it's but in fairness to you, I, I, I think what you went through and your behaviour post that, you might look back and go, "I wasn't the greatest person," or you know, I went through bad moment. I don't think there's a person in the world that wouldn't, with a torture contraption on their head, which is basically what it was—a medieval torture contraption on your head, where they would continually tighten these bolts. I mean, just the the thought alone makes any of us just queasy. How did you? I mean, were you lacking with sleep then? Were oh, you able to sleep at all? No, not at all. No, I, yeah.
1: I, I, I think for the first – in fact, um, um, I, don't, I don't know Tim O'Donnell. Like, I know him and I know him quite well, but we're not best mates or anything like that um through Chris this is a long story you know the names people don't but these guys dropped a lazy boy off so I could sleep in the living room um you know Chris Lee and Tim O'Donnell um so they had a sectional that was missing a lazy boy so I could sleep in it but I couldn't even sleep in that I had to sleep bolt upright any pinch, any pressure from my belly button up on this uh, on the halo on the the brace would alter the angle of these screws in my head so I would and and I couldn't um, when you sleep, you close your mouth unless you're a snorer, but when you see bolt upright, your jaw drops and boulder, the air is so dry. So I would last probably about 20 minutes and then I'd get like, is it cotton mouth? And I'd wake up and literally it was like that for the first probably three or four weeks. And I was then on, I was only on, um, uh, a codeine based medication and it really wasn't agreeing with me, but so I, I tried to come off it. And then the pain was like, like, like you couldn't believe, um, there was one night where I was literally in the garage looking for an Allen key to try and take this freaking thing off my head. Cause I'd started to vomit. And when you vomit, you have this gag reflex. So as I'm gagging, my, the screws are digging deeper into my skull. Um, so yeah, there were definitely yeah there was there was there wasn't much sleep. I was a, I couldn't focus and concentrate, and people were visiting me, and I didn't know I couldn't remember them because I was you know the pain was just so you know so terrible. Um, so yeah, I was a real like moody. Yeah, you, oh. you know, yeah, I was yeah,
0: real moody and miserable. <laughs> mate, mate, I'm 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 lost for words. I'm, I'm still visualising you in the garage, dry heaving with these bolts in your head, trying to find an Allen key.
1: <laughs> With Kelly Just, going, no, no. <laughs>
0: oh, mate, I can only I, I can I can really feel the pain now. You describe it very well, and <laughs> <laughs> it's awful, mate. But then one of your sponsors on running shoes, um, they come up with an idea, and tell me if this is how it went, but basically to do to document your recovery. I mean, were you quick to say, I'm going to get back to Iron Man? or was this like, okay, I'm done? What was that process like of firstly coming to terms with what has happened and then going, okay, I want to go all the way back to Iron Man? I mean, was that Not- you planting that seed or somebody else? And then tell me about also then how the documentary came about.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the, the, so I think – look, you retired when you retired and it was kind of on your terms, if that's fair to say, do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was the same. I, look, well, I, I haven't retired yet. I'm still, I'm still stupid. I'm still blooming racing or not this year, but um, yeah. you want to retire on your terms. And, you know, I didn't want to retire from someone else's carelessness of, um, you know, their driving that would put me out. So I always wanted to get back to racing. Did I believe it was possible in, Some days, yes, because the doctor had said, this is your best chance. But there were other days when I was like, absolutely not. I can't even walk down the stairs. I couldn't put socks on. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't get in a car with this contraption on. Um, So, yeah, but I always, deep down, definitely wanted to give it a go. And I was at the park. Um, There's a park where I lived in Boulder, about 500 meters away. And I'd walk there with Kelly and the kids and, and my phone rang, and it was a Swiss number. My sister lives in Switzerland, and I thought, "Oh, that's strange. She's got a, a she must have a new number." So I answered it, thinking it was my sister Nicola, who you've met a few times. <laughs> um we're, talk about that. We're, we're not going to talk about that greg let's not go there mate, <laughs> oh And God,
0: that's uh, a whole side story for everybody in the late 90s we'll leave it alone
1: <laughs> <laughs> um and it was oliver bernard who is the the founder of on and um you know right from the beginning they were one of the sponsors that i would say along with specialized and Enduro and, and let's be honest all my sponsors but i, I you know he'd done iron man he'd top 10 at kona um and he'd phoned firstly, to see how I was. And he said, look, I'm going to come to the cut to the chase the, 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 the media guys here, the marketing guys here want to want to do this thing. They wanted to maybe do a 10, 15 minute documentary. But I said, no, I said, I want to speak to you and I want to run it by you because I want to see how you react to what I'm saying. And, you know, and I want you to think about it. I don't want you to think, Tim, you kind of have to do this for your sponsors, etc., etc." um and yeah we chatted about other things and he said think about it get back to me in your own time etc etc so yeah I hung up and and Kelly was like oh you spoke to your sister for a long time I said no it wasn't her it was, uh, it was <laughs> Oliver on um, and yeah that, that that's how that came about and um I said I said, you know I I I, I I I I obviously later I said yes um they said they wanted to do it something different they wanted to maybe use someone from outside the triathlon world and kind of tell more the story of the journey as opposed to, you know, you see these promotional videos of people crossing the line, etc. And they didn't want it to be a promotional video. They wanted it to be a story. Um, and, um, yeah, so that's how that came about. And um, they found this guy who was a British guy who was living in Oregon. who had um, He'd done an amazing documentary about a Tibetan monk and won a, I think it was a, would it be a, a BAFTA or a, a BAFTA for it? Mm. Um, or the is that British, music? Yeah emmy no emmy's music so he'd run a bath before it uh, he didn't know much about sport so they, they they flew him from oregon to to boulder and i went and had coffee with him at um oh, what's the coffee shop in um gum barrel i oh, can't remember not uh, like i never i never went out to gum barrel yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> <True>. <laughs> I listen to you, how, North Boulder. So, so
0: hang on. Where, how, how long after the surgery and the accident that was? That call?
1: was prob- that was well before Christmas. That was about four weeks. I'd say about three weeks. I started to kind of like the the pain was subsiding, um, and I I think it was about three and a half weeks when I first got into okay. the gym. So it was about four weeks. So it was what like uh, what the twelfth twelfth of November. Mm. Um, yeah, and I really you know I hit it off with him. Who's very very trendy, dry kind of guy. Um, yeah, and he was really keen to do this. Very un—he um, didn't want to get in our faces and that. And you know, we planned he was going to come down for a couple, a couple of like four-day stints where he would follow me and Franco, who manages me. He was very instrumental in kind of managing that and you know that kind of relationship. So it wasn't too much. And if I was if I was having a bad day and so forth, um, I'll tell you a funny story that is later on when on first saw the the edit that he'd done they said no way can we show this this is too dark this is too kind of like depressing and he was like no but look it is a story of the start to the beginning and the the, 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 sorry the start to the end and in the end is you know he he, six months later he does this race etc etc it is amazing but this is the truth and so I never saw that cut but they had to re-edit it I mean there were times my screws kept on coming loose Um, So that I had to go in and get them tightened, and one came loose so many times that I had to get a CAT scan. I was getting CAT scans every three weeks of my neck. I had to get one of my screws because it was it was every time they tightened it, it was going deeper into my skull, and they were worried it was going to go right through into my brain. So it was just before Christmas. So I was like, "You beauty, this is good. They're going to have to take it off, and I'm going to have to wear a collar." And they went, "Yeah, Tim, we can't tighten this anymore. We're going to have to take it out. Yes, and drill another hit hole." a centimeter to the left and i'm like what so just before christmas i had a fifth screw. they took the fourth one out and i had another screw blooming drilled oh
0: man man, especially when you go oh great i don't have
1: to wear it anymore
0: oh my god that's just absolutely brutal did you ever see you've never
1: seen the other no i haven't actually in fact i should get yeah now it's been well and truly gone. I'm sure Andrew's got it, um, yeah, somewhere, but I should see what it was, but no, I, it was great. And, um, yeah, you know, he came and he interviewed lots of my friends and, um, you know, took the film, the footage of me, obviously, you know, the recovery when I was in the gym and when I had all of my doctor's appointments and so forth. So, and, and I, this sounds funny, but it, in a, in a weird way, that was my therapy that kind of helped me because hmm. when we're so goal orientated and don't get me wrong I love the process I love ticking those boxes you know I love seeing green in training pigs you know we, we we love how we get there and you know everything was taken away from me and you know when my goal you know all of a sudden I had this goal because part of the documentary was would you like to run Boston Marathon six months to the I think to the weekend of Kona um and I was like yeah definitely so you know I by making my kind of recovery so public without a doubt it's that helped me you know all the messages I was getting on if social media didn't exist no one would have bothered writing me a proper letter and put a stamp on and in fact one person sent me a card um with a long letter and and that was Lauren Brandon um Mm. But uh, but you know uh, so the, the, the modern technology social media definitely you know helped me through those dark times without a doubt so thank everyone out there for that
0: <laughs> and, and and did you find then that it was like a, I mean first and foremost what was it like having a camp I mean you're basically a reality show was it strange having you know the um, film crew in and around like with or did you time it so we only want you at this time or that time or did you come home from were they, were they there at times when it really made it feel uncomfortable
1: when. Maybe
0: you and Kelly just wanted to
1: talk. Well, when or- I wanted to tell her to <laughs> no, absolutely no. There were definitely times when it was uncomfortable for Andrew, but it 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 was uncomfortable. But he was there. It, he was there, but he wasn't there. If that makes sense. Um, in fact, you know, he was there for my 40th birthday because in January, it's like uh, mm. what was it? Eight days after I had the halo off, you know, had a very emotional 40th birthday party, and he did loads of filming around that. But I think it was just too emotional that none of it made the, the 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 cut that everyone saw. Um, you know, you don't get you don't get those days back again. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, he was there. Um, you know, I think let's be honest, like the Kardashians, they're always on the best behavior and let well unless it's, <laughs> unless it's Keanu West wherever he's called. Yeah, oh, you're like your he is. <laughs> <is it>? <laughs> <laughs> oh right.
0: Um,
1: but, um, Yeah, you know, don't tell me that's that's true. Not true to life. Come on, uh, <laughs> A billion dollars uh, or not. <laughs> did, did, but,
0: it um, add any, did it add any pressure to you? Like to to like I mean, was it Dave McGilvray who who wrote you? You know, the the, the race director for Boston Marathon. Did he write you, or who, whose idea was it to do Boston Marathon? And by sort of putting that out there, plus this documentary of this huge comeback, did it add pressure, or was it all you took it on as positive? you know like you said
1: people writing you encouraging you and that kind of thing I think initially it was definitely there was no pressure it was just the case of kind of getting around and you know when you know when you're sitting there you know going back to sport when you sat there with your coach and you got you know a four-year build to an Olympic Games or you got a two-year build to Kona which is what I had in 2017 I'd started to work with a new bike coach that was our build course you're going to have these lofty goals and everyone believes and everyone's pumped and as you get closer and you do or don't make the kind of milestone (laughs) targets you either go what have I let myself I'm not going to be able to do this um so there were times when I thought you know I you know when the halo came off I thought hell yeah the halo's off but I remember the doctor described it as your 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 head is a bowling ball being supported by spaghetti and i was like no way i've been training i've been getting massages of marcus i've been do, been in the gym and i remember when the halo came off i was like no i, I that, yeah it is that is the best analogy of wow. <laughs> the feeling wow. and that's i think the first week of it came off that was not pain wise um, it, but mentally, that was one of the toughest weeks because I thought halo's off. Everyone, I, I've already been, I've already been riding on the turbo. I've been walking up to an hour every day. I've been doing some mobility work, lower body in the gym. Halo's coming off. I'll be running by this time. I'll be on my bike on the road. I'll be in the pool. And like ten days later, I was still could hardly move because. The muscle wastage from my belly button up was just like, oh man, i would not—not that I'm a big fella anyway—but I'd lost muscle, my mobility. I couldn't turn my, I couldn't rotate my thoracic, let alone my neck. Um, and no, definitely, I had to pay. To, I, I we're well not—that uh, sounds very, very egotistic, but I, I paid to enter three hundred and ninety dollars to do Boston Marathon. You know, there was no. I, I only got in because I'd done the qualifying time. By breaking the world record and running a a, a two forty four, otherwise I, I I would have been starting way way at the back, you know, with the masses. Boston is <laughs> one of Boston makes Kona look easy to qualify. It's so <laughs> hard to qualify for that race. <laughs> don't,
0: don't don't you know Dave McGilvery?
1: Well, know it's funny. Dave? I I no, I'd never met him or but no, but oh. I, I should have actually done a talk a talk with him this year in Boston, but unfortunately, um, Trimania, but unfortunately, it got cancelled in March due to yeah. um the coronavirus. Um, yeah. but no don't get me wrong i i was just thankful god he organizes a race for what is it thirty, forty thousand 40,000 people you know mm-hmm. i'm just a just 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 a you know just one person <laughs> um it's it's just
0: it's such a fascinating story mate and 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 just for so you had you had the the halo on for 3 months and then it's amazing how that you just lose all that muscle and ability and nervous system as well just being able to move then you had another three months, which is not much, <laughs> you know, to try and go run a marathon. And obviously you've been working out your entire life and there's some, you know, some decent work behind you. But then you've turned up to Boston Marathon, one of the worst conditions I think Boston Marathon's ever had, right? I mean, it was...
1: It was beautiful. What are you on about? <laughs> no, <laughs> not was, I mean, point to point, we had, a, oh. we had sleep, had- we had headwind, we had rain. Oh, yeah. minus... Wind chill factors, Um, like uh, Bob Babbitt, I think it's the only Boston he started and not finished because he does it in an Elvis costume and it got so heavy and cold. I mean, I think like 60% of the pro field didn't finish. Um, Yeah, it was brutal conditions. And
0: you still went at 249. I mean, I know you probably had even loftier goals, but from what I understand, at 249 after six months after breaking your neck, three months of that no sleep sitting in a halo upright. I just I can't even figure out how you slept. I don't even I, I really feel like yeah. you've just gone 3 yeah. months with no sleep. Actually, that's a question for you. When you took that halo off, as much as you couldn't physically move or anything, how did you sleep like a baby when you took it off?
1: Nope, not at all. So, after about 6 weeks, um I tried to sleep in the bed and I just I I could only sleep with like literally like 15 pillows, so I was bolt upright. And like if you fly from Australia to America, you get cankles. Even if you do fly first class, you get cankles. I I made cankles look small because I was I, I just wasn't moving and I was upright. So we 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 ended up having to buy like one of those beds, like a hospital bed that moves for like oh, yeah. nine yeah. nine grand. Um, so we bought one of these beds and that really helped. So you know my legs were elevated, so my blood wasn't pooling, and I wasn't getting bed sores and stuff. Um, but no, when the halo came off, I was like, you beauty, but literally my muscles weren't strong enough to lay flat. I would lay flat and get spasms and cramps. So even then I had to sleep in this kind of like S shape where, you know, my back was upright, my bum was down, my legs were up and then my calves were flat. So no, I, I definitely, I didn't sleep like a baby for a a good few months after, um, but I mean without, yeah, when the halo came off.
0: It's just insane, and then I just want to keep moving forward a little bit before we go all the way back. But I, the, the next phase is you go win, you go win your first seventy point three back in Costa Rica. I mean, how was that? Was that like a, was that an emotional high like none other, or or was that just ticking a box? Were you already sort of feeling normal and back in, back
1: going? No, it was a it was a funny thing because I was there on my own um and it's a big trip from yeah it was a big mm. trip and a big but um yeah no it, it was one of those ones where you kind of I went back to the hotel room and I think I shouted as loud as I could just that just that kind of like adrenaline release but um yeah. no I mean I genuinely didn't expect that don't get me wrong like as you said it was in Costa Rica it wasn't a great field there was a there was an, a really good Australian Ryan Fisher who was an ITU yeah. guy who was yeah. there
0: very good
1: Yes, Santiago Acedo from Brazil, um, and um, uh, Ryan got a like a penalty for um, on the bike, um, so that did give me a little bit of an advantage <laughs> on the run. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I had a, a good a good race. I took a chance on the bike, attacked, and got like a minute lead. I knew it was going to be like four hundred degrees, so everyone would go crazy on the first part of the run to try and catch me. And I think they got to within 30 seconds, and then everyone blew up. Well, I could just run my own pace, um, yeah. and it was. But then I think the the kind of like the 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 high of that race was also like, well, if I can do this, I can go back to Kona. And then I, it was just kind of like to go back to Kona. I know what it takes to qualify, let alone kind of like try and be competitive there. And that's when it was like, oh, sugar, now the pressure's really on for me to, you know, running 249, I, I ran quicker than that in a nine, man. Jan, Jan runs that on a Monday you know, after blooming, I don't know, like tapas and sangria. Um, so, um, you know, I think by, by winning that race, it gave me enough points. And, and then I had to made the, the, the mathematically, it made it possible for me to try and do well in an Ironman to, to qualify for Kona and um, yeah, race there 12 months later or yeah, you know, after the accident. And
0: yeah. you did. And, and, and what I couldn't, I, I was a little surprised. I know Ironman's got a lot of positives, so I'm not putting them down, but I, Sometimes my, my empathy or my human spirit, whatever it is, I kind of felt like, can we give Tim a start? <laughs> you know, can, we, can we just give him the start? And, and it looked like you weren't going because I think you finished top 10 at an Ironman in Europe. Was it Ironman Hamburg? I think That's one right,
1: of the Yeah, German uh, yeah, yeah. I had. A- Great race there, but I'd be. You see, your head. My head's a big old thing, and it's heavy, and and it doesn't sit straight anymore. So when you start up in the training, your whole body's off, off kilt, off, off kilt. So I was getting hip issues and Achilles issues, which I haven't had in my whole career. And yeah, I I basically, I, I, I think I the last three weeks I'd hardly run leading up to Hamburg. And yeah, I came off the bike in a great position, top three with a big lead over everyone else. And yeah, I basically ran. I don't know 12, 15 K and job to, you know, manage the rest. So yeah, I, I needed to get top six to qualify and I didn't. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't get the points. Um, yeah. Unfortunately.
0: <laughs> yeah. But then it rolled down. So, I mean, well, no. You then I,
1: two weeks oh. later, I went to Copenhagen Ironman to try and do it because at that stage, Ironman offered me a slot and I said, if you'd have offered it me last year, I would have accepted it. But I've tried to do something. No way am I going to accept it. You you should have done it back then, you cheeky monkeys. Um, so I said, no, I'm OK. I'm going to try and qualify. So I went to Copenhagen, came out to swim, had a great swim, um, swam like 44 minutes with um, Jasper Stevenson, Svensson. Um, we got off on the bike and he raced Copenhagen. No, sorry, he raced Hamburg and he crashed right at the end and he was biking with me. I was like, it's not a strong field. The two of us can bike away from everyone. 10K into the race, he falls off, his tyre rolls and he goes, "Nope, I'm out. So I rode 138K on my own and then I got caught by like eight people and I was not fit enough to do that. I came off the bike with all these guys and basically I ran to a point Of exhaust. And and again, on the bike, I'd stopped and been for a number two because I'd got my nutrition wrong. But when they caught me, I was like, no way. And I didn't finish the race. I think I ran like 28K and I said, no way. And I hadn't qualified. I genuinely had not qualified. And I was like, yep, fair enough. You know, I said, I mean, I'm getting in good shape to my wife. Maybe I can do some races later in the year. But right now, I want to come home, see you guys, and just chill. And it was two days later um I got up I didn't feel too bad I got up to go swimming as you do you check your social media have a coffee and I checked my emails and I got an email from Heather who's the Ironman pro liaison officer whatever that is and um apparently the guy who was I was ranked 51st in the world and the guy or in the ranking and the guy who was ranked one ahead of me had decided not to go to Kona so they'd offered it to me and at that stage I, I was like oh, yeah, I guess I have earned it. But in my mind, I'd already made plans to go to Cozumel, do the 70.3, kind of start the build (laughs) for 2019. Um, But my wife said, you'd be crazy not to go. It's so hard to get there. You never know what's going to happen. So, yeah, I I did eventually qualify with a roll-down slot, albeit, yeah.
0: (laughs) It's interesting when you mentioned, I just want to go back to what you said, with now your head position was sort of – to watch you run is one of the most pleasurable things you can do in terms of watching biomechanics really working well like i've always from your feet your knees your hips all the way through you've always made running look pretty you've always made it look i don't you've been running your whole life but to to hear that you know this 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 broken neck then changed the position of your your head have you been able to since then sort of realign and start to feel normal or have you been struggling with niggles since
1: Uh, i don't know because i'm 42 now or my i use my neck as an excuse because i'm a (laughs) young guy but no i mean yeah no i i i kind of i get into a a groove and i can last about eight weeks of quality running and you know see some form of myself but then i know i have to manage it so yeah yeah i'm definitely yeah i mean we're never the athlete we were we always want to be You know, that Swedish session that you can remember you did, whether it was in Gindervine or Switzerland (laughs) or France, you know, those, 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 that day when you hit those times, we always dream of that. Yeah, that ain't happening anymore. <laughs> no, nah, And it, it
0: only gets worse once you actually, you know, when you retire. And I, I look back oh, now, like I, oh I often laugh with Law and I go, you know, I go to, I mean, these days I'm, I'm busy sort of hitting the gym and just trying to put muscle on and, and kind of approaching sport in a different way. And, um, but I look back occasionally, I'll go for a 5k run, just a, a little 5k run, nothing. Mate, I am so exhausted when I get home and I say to Laura, I just can't believe that we used to treat a 10k run as a loosen the legs recovery session you know what i mean it was like a and i mean i'm just doing some homework for this video i watched some of your um specialized bikes did these 48 hours with tim don one i think he did one in 2011 and one in 2014 and and just these huge volumes of training that you put together and these amazing times and after you retire you look back and you go wow it's it's like seriously i look back and just it blows your mind of what you were capable of when you were an athlete so so enjoy it because in a few yeah. years after you retired, like, oh. and 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 on that i do want i do want to cool. go back a little bit and, and like i said to you i have done a bit of homework for this and it brought back so many great memories for me you you've won four world titles um the junior world title I remember that clearly and and this was back in ninety eight Lausanne world championships and and for the pro men we'd Raced on the Friday night, so we got to watch all the races over the weekend. And I remember watching a young Bryce Quirk from Australia, <laughs> and he had, and, and this is a time when juniors did the Olympic distance. There was no, you know, sprint or anything else. This is when juniors were men, Arr! and uh, and you guys, you guys were running the 10k off the bike. And Bryce Quirk, he must have had a reasonable lead. I think a minute or two, and. And he's giving us this like hang 10 signal as he ran past, you know, I've got this guy's, yep, no problem. (laughs) And then all of a sudden we're we're there sort of 15 minutes later and, and there comes along this young British kid that none of us have seen cleared cleared the field by 30 or 40 seconds i think and then you know bryce quirk came in second but it was one it was probably the first time i ever saw you race and i think it was mainly because i watched this very confident and i give bryce a hard time every time i speak to him about this how you you know you haven't won until you've won but that was the first time that i saw you on the world stage where you showed this enormous promise as a 20 year old winning well under 20 well we're in 1920 winning the world junior championships um but take me back and tell me about when did you sort of first find your passion for endurance sports and and was it always triathlon or did you start with something else
1: no i i mean i started with swimming believe it or not (laughs) um yeah you know i remember you know when i was seven swimming before school and um having jam sandwiches in the car um you know um and yeah I I always loved the outdoors I'd always had a mountain bike and would bomb around and when I went from junior school to secondary school so it's that high school so I was kind of like 12 13 Um, then you do like school against school cross countries and I I wasn't the best but I did I I ran I, I was running well and one of the coaches well not coaches the PE teacher Flossie he was called Um, Mr. Patterson was his proper name, but we called him Flossie because he had these big eyebrows. And we all wanted a football to play with at lunchtime from the PE department. So I'd go, I'd always the one that had to go and ask him and he'd go, little Timmy Don, are you going to run for me? Are you going to run for me? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, just give us a football. And he'd grab my arm and like dig it in, you know, like, oh, so painful. (laughs) I can't do that anymore. (laughs) Just give us a football, football, Rossi. That's all the boys want. (laughs) Um, And yeah, no, I just, I I just loved running. And like, when I look back, I was, I, I was like, I was so lucky I was (coughs) sorry it's not that I was born at the right place at the right time but I loved running so I joined my local running club and it was was then it was called Hounslow Athletic Club now it's called Hounslow Windsor Slough and Eton and there was was a guy a year younger than me called Sam Sam Hockian who 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 became one of my best friends and a guy a year older than me called um, Ben Whitby who again you know became one of my best friends and on a Tuesday and Thursday evening, they'd ride past the end of my road, and I'd be on my, literally, a 20-pound racer that I used to do my paper round on, and we'd ride there, we'd do our run session, um, we'd stop at the newsagents on the way home, spend a pound on penny sweets, so we'd get 100 sweets, um, as <laughs> yeah. opposed to you get, like, 10 sweets, and then, you know, we'd do that, and then on on we'd do a long run, um, and then... Um, Ben went, uh, uh, Ben went, Sam went to my school and Ben transferred schools to come to our school. So we would run a lot. So I always used to joke, they were better than me, Sam and Ben. And um, I used to joke, I was the third best runner in my school, but I was the fourth best runner in my county because there was another guy who ended up joining my run group. And I think it was my second or third year. who was a lot younger than us, but damn, he was quick. And his name was Mo Yeah. <laughs> so wow. twice, a, twice a week, I would be running with Sam, Ben, who were better than Mo, and this young guy, Mo. Um, and that's that's where I started. Um, and then as I got older, I realised I was definitely not as good as these guys. I mean, Sam went on to medal at the European junior uh 5, 000 meters. Um Ben went to the Commonwealth Games for, for half marathon. Um and obviously Mo went on to do what the, the Mo Farrow did. He was pretty good. <laughs> In fact, there's um I think in, in Mo's uh, I don't keep in contact with Mo at all anymore. Um, I'm sure he knows, you know, if we bumped into each other, we'd, we'd, we'd have a good chat down memory lane. But a, there's a big picture of me in his book, but it's about a race because there was a, an, a marathon guy there called Richard Narurka who organizes amazing races at the moment for, in Ethiopia. He organizes the Addis Ababa Marathon and he does a lot of work for charity and he's a missionary over there. Um, he's a medical doctor, but I think he's a 210 marathon runner um, and he lived in the same area. So I would go to the track to do my track sessions and I would literally have Daniel Komen, Paul Turga, um, wow. Craig Mottram was training there, Sonia O'Sullivan. Um, who else is there? There were um, there was there was about eight Kenyan athletes based there because their manager was a guy called Kim um, McDonald, K-I-M International, which is now is it Fast Pace, which is Ricky Suze took over. He was his protege. Um, and basically they, the reason that the Kenyans would come to Europe on a, on a, on a, on a university visa for the local university, which wasn't a big one called St. Mary's university. So I was just immersed into this endurance culture. I would swim in the morning. And as I drove through Bushy Park, I would literally see 15 Kenyans running in pack formation. And it was, it was just, that was my passion running growing up. I, I, I truly wanted to be a runner, but I wasn't good enough. And I didn't particularly want to get a job, so I got a. You know, when I was at school, I got a job as a lifeguard, and I joined um, the local triathlon club, which Spencer Smith was a member of. Um, and um, it, as I say, it's like it's like that ten thousand hours. I was in the right place at the right time. There was a guy a year younger than me who was even more serious about triathlon than me, called Stuart Hayes, and he had a younger brother who was ten times more talented than all of us, called Dan Hayes. We like we were trained at the same triathlon club. His coach was Bill Smith, who coached Spencer Smith at the time. It was just like it was just like when I look back it was a who 's who of like you know endurance sport it was like the the old school boulder on the outskirts of London. <laughs>
0: Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. I love how you talk about it. You know, the, the, uh, what's the book called? Um, the 10,000 hour rule, where, they, where he wow. actually talks about there's hard work, there, there's um, talent, but, but the final ingredient is opportunity. And yes. when, when the names that you have just dropped basically, we're talking about the greatest endurance athletes in the world of the 90s. Um, you know, Paul Turgat, um, you know, had Hayley Gabriel Celesi been in that park with all you guys, you basically got everybody uh, from from the 90s. And then you look at someone like Spencer Smith, who just was just a machine in triathlon just one of the the all-time greatest triathletes um who i have to have on this show actually
1: i was just thinking that yeah (laughs) i'd love to have
0: a chat i'd love to have a chat with spencer and a wonderful guy and his dad bill smith just one of the most passionate Men you could ever meet. I never forget Racing Spencer and go my boy on the sidelines, you know, he'd be screaming for his son or go my son, I think he used to yell and Um, but just a very passionate guy. So you just surrounded, you were totally immersed into the endurance culture. But at what point you say you weren't a runner standard compared to the names that you've just dropped, but at what point did you say, actually, I have some some strength in this triathlon business? And you started triathlon and and at what point did you go, hang on, I'm actually reasonably good at this?
1: I think it was, um, I think it was actually when I was about 14 and, um, Stewie Hayes said, if you do this duathlon, which luckily was just down the road and you get top six, they're going to select you for the European duathlon championships. And that was a youth. So I think it was 3k run, 15k bike, then 1500. And I was like, my mum said, yep, she'll pay for the entry. Um, and she'll drive me there. Um, I didn't have toe clips. So I did the whole race in my running shoes with like, um, those old rat traps. And I finished sixth and Stuart Hayes finished seventh. (laughs) Probably the (laughs) biggest regret of his young career. And literally, there was this guy called Mick English who was our team manager. And he had love tattoos on one one hand knuckles and hate on the other. And he was from Derby. And he came up to me with Steve Chu and says, yeah, you're all right. We want you to come to Vukati in Finland to the European champs. And I was like, yeah, I'll come. And they said, "Well, you have got to pay for it." And I was like, "Okay, let me talk to my mum." And my mum said, "I think she was flustered." My dad wasn't there, which was probably a godsend. He was said, "No." Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, yeah my mum said yes. So um, that was when I got my first international cap. I went to the Duraphlan, and it snowed in the race. I think the senior men then did a 14k run, 60k non-drafting, and then a 7k run. And I literally, they they all got frostbite. I did the second run with my helmet on because I couldn't get it off. And I finished <laughs> fourth. I finished fourth in Europe. I was like, this is amazing. But I was also the third British athlete. So I was still only fourth in Europe. I was only third in Great Britain. And this is early season. So that year, I think it was 92 or 93. I then went to do all the, 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 the local triathlons, which all the juniors did. There was no talent, no fun, no talent ID, no funding. Yeah. You just race. That was, yeah. that was your, yeah. that was your talent ID. You, you put your number on and you just give it, give it some. And literally like, I was so lucky. There were these guys called the Herbert brothers, Alex, Ben and Russell. And they would just win everything. Then there was Simon Trundle, Mark Michelle. There was a guy who won the all English schoolboy cross country. And he'd like won the British 10 mile time trial championships but he could also swim i was like the fifth or sixth best triathlete through kind of like 93 94 95 and 96 97 i realized that you know i i I was i was the one that was willing to train these guys had the talent no doubt but they weren't they weren't getting up as early as i was and they 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 weren't you know not training more they all trained a lot more than me but i was listening to my coach so therefore you know i believed i was training better um Mm. And, yeah, I think it was 97 I realised that, yeah, maybe something could happen.
0: I, I love that story. I actually, for me, it's fairly similar. I never won a race throughout high school. I never won a running race, nothing. But the guys I was running against were, were coming top three or four. They were winning the national schoolboy championships, but then they were also finishing top four or five in the open championships. And so I never got a chance to win. And and I've said, it. excuse me for people who listen to this podcast a few times, it's like I never really got a I never learned how to win because I just always felt like I was there and loved it. I was passionate and wanted to be a part of it, but I didn't know how to win. It took me a long, long time to almost get that confidence and figure out the process of of winning. But for you, the story is a little different because you say 97, you realize you had some strength and and ability in the sport. A year later, you're winning the world junior championships. Was that what was that like? I mean, that was an Olympic distance race. It wasn't a sprint race. So my point in in mentioning that for people who don't understand is I think the sprint distance has a lot more just raw talent. Whereas when you start to get to the Olympic distance, there's a real training process that has to have taken place to, to gain the strength um, that you need, especially as a junior. So tell me, take me through that, that first major win championship.
1: But even going back before then, in 1995, I was 17, racing a non-drafting Olympic distance in the under 20s World Champs. I finished 69th. Chris Hill won in Cancun, and Craig Walton was second. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I was like nine minutes behind them. Um, <laughs> you know, I definitely had not learned to win the easy way. Let me tell no, you that. No, I love but,
0: that. I love that. I've got the results right in front of me. Actually, now that you mentioned there, you are 69th. Yeah, it's yeah I, think I, I think I was 69. Uh, the, but you were, we you were 69th know. and you were 12 minutes behind chris hill actually oh, <laughs> <damn>. <laughs> the, 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 the
1: closer i finish um i mean like look look look. i think they probably yeah i mean like, they would have destroyed me on the swim and the bike um i was just a scrawny 17 year old kid um i did the giraffe the week before i think i was 25th there so a little bit better <laughs> yeah um but I think for me it started um it was the winter of nineteen ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Um I went to Zimbabwe with Craig Ball, a very good friend, Richard Stannard and Lovely a couple guys, of a other athletes. A, yeah, great a athlete. couple of other athletes. Um and I was by foot. they were like three, four, five years older than me. Um and I was training with these guys. They were, you know, they were racing French Grand Prix, they were doing all the small races in France, making money, you know, they had sponsors and stuff. And yeah, I think they opened my eyes to training professionally, um, following my my coach's advice. And I remember they all kept, I was training as well, if not a little bit better than them. And I remember them saying to me, Tim, you're training too hard. You can't be going this hard, this fast, this early. And I said, I'm doing what my coach says. And they kept on using this analogy of like, Tim, you've got to plant the potatoes. You've got to look after them. And you don't eat the French fries till the summer, till the season. And they kept on saying, oh, Tim's eating his French fries. He's going to have a terrible year. I was like, I don't know. I'm just doing what I'm told. And we all flew back to Europe after this big altitude camp of like four months. And it was the first race was the British University champs. I wasn't at university, but there was an open race. And I remember racing it and I wiped the floor with them. And they were like, holy shit. You were, oh, sorry. They were like, oh, Wow. Like you, you, <laughs> you, fine, were, you, you, you were you were really ready and like Craig Ball raced for Sartreville in France. I couldn't get a start in French Grand Prix, as you said. You didn't know who I was. Yeah, no one knew who I was. But he let me go over there, so I trained with them and I met these two lovely guys called Tim Bentley and Andrew Noble. Uh, uh, good Australians, yes, yeah, and um, they were kicking ass in Europe. More athletes, but they were they were they were they were. They were well, from the St. George Formula One, the two East Blue, you know, they were for, they were amazing athletes and they took me under their wing. We moved to Alpe for eight weeks with Craig and like literally we trained the house down and that's what gave me the confidence to believe in myself was to believe in my training. And to this day, I always look back the day before, two days before, I always look back at my training and take confidence from the sessions I've done. Um, you know, and how I've I've built up to that, that I've got the foundation. And, um, yeah, I did a race in Germany called the Schliersee Triathlon, which back then was a non-drafting race, a swim, uh, hilly bike, but you finish with like a 5K proper alpine pass. And Bryce was there with Levi. I don't think Courtney was. And we did this press conference before, and they invited me because I'd been racing well in Europe that year. And I was like, look, I'm hoping to get round this race. This course is crazy. And these guys are like, yes, this is a stepping stone to becoming junior world champion. And I looked at Stuart going, oh, my God, these Aussies are so professional. They're so good. And they've just landed. And um, there was a guy called Christoph Mausch and Eric van der Linden. And they took off on that last climb like mountain goats, especially, especially Eric van der Linden. And I was like, "Do you know what? I'm going to chase them. So I went off with them. I lasted halfway up and then they dropped me, but I dropped everyone else and I got third in that race. And that was like three weeks before Lausanne. And that kind of really gave me the confidence to race on a, on a hilly course in Lausanne. Um, Mm -hmm. and I do remember that point with Bryce, I was running, I think just behind Bryce with Stu, Courtney and Levi. And, um, he, I think I I remember, um, there was Miles Stewart, probably Chris and yourself and other all the Aussies there contingent shouting. Obviously I had Lesson who didn't cheer for anyone as we know. So he wasn't there. AJ was of course, um, but um, Lesson definitely wasn't cheering for me. Um, and yeah, um, they um he kind of like gave you the kind of like yeah don't worry and I thought you cheeky bugger and I think round the next corner I thought I'm gonna lay it on and I, I never looked back and I just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and I raced in fear and kind of like it wasn't literally if you look at the photo if you google Tim crossing the line it wasn't literally till I crossed the line that I was like I believed I'd won <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: and, and at that point was it like okay I know I can have a a true professional career here was that like a real stamp of okay this is what i'm going to do
1: um i think there was no turning back for me in my mind um again going back earlier in the year i'd done the i was in great shape i did the european junior driathlon champs and i attacked on the bike i got away and i thought yes i'm going to win this and this dude overtook me with like i don't know 500 meters to go a german guy called falk Chierpinski who then went on to blumin run at the Olympics for marathon. And I found out his father was um, uh, Frank Shorter's nemesis who beat him in... um, not Montreal Olympics in Munich Olympics so you know I got beaten into second and I went to the European Draughtland champs again I was really up for it the juniors don't race that much but I knew I was in great shape my bike got stolen like the evening before the race so I had to borrow on a borrowed bike get, the brakes were the wrong way round; left was rear yeah. you know all this yeah and I got second so it for me it was more I've proved to myself that you know even though i got second and second don't get me wrong looking back they're not bad results second in europe but i really wanted to win and i think that really gave me the confidence and the stepping stone to be the athlete i i i I am the person i am
0: (laughs) but it's quite incredible because then you've gone off to qualify for the british olympic team and you know you guys had a a tough team to make with with simon lessing who you mentioned before simon for the, those who don't know is one of the greatest triathletes of all time with uh um, four world titles and just a guy that all of us struggled to beat in that mid to late 90s just an exceptional athlete across the board swim bike and run and um but you qualified for that olympics and you actually did incredibly well in sydney you you were you were i think was it eighth or tenth tenth uh, tenth. Tenth, tenth um What did that kind of, that qualifying for that, tell me about that first Olympics for you and qualifying and just, was that something you'd always dreamed of to be an Olympian and all these kinds of things? or, Or was it just kind of like, okay, tick another box?
1: No, I think, you know, when you, when I was younger and as an athlete, I always dreamed of going to the Olympics, but alas, my sport wasn't an Olympic sport. So Mm -hmm. I dreamed of being world champion and going to Kona. And it was actually Lausanne is where the IOC are based. And in 1998, the year I won junior worlds, um, that's when they announced that it was going to be an Olympic sport two years later. And I was like, yeah, I think Mark Jenkins, Richard Allen, um, there are a few Mm -hmm. other guys, uh, Craig Ball that were in the shout for that, that kind of third spot. Um, but I, I was kind of a very much an outside chance, but I, you know, I, yeah, she kept on training. So, but the, the selection policy is quite funny. This is how dominant Simon Lessing was. Our selection policy was is that the top ranked athlete, um, in the world ranking was pre-selected, and the, the other two had to do a, um, a couple of selection races, which they announced, you know, early 2000. Um, but AJ was a good athlete in '98, '90. 90, I think he was. Due, he was a European mm-hmm. champ in '98. But he, Simon Lesson, I I say that in all due respect, was a was a better athlete. But damn, AJ improved, and all of a sudden he's ranked ahead of Greg um, of Simon Lesson. Simon Lesson has to do these tiny selection races. Um and because of the way that we have to qualify three people, I I I, I was I had no world ranking because I was still a junior. The other guys had good world rankings, Mark Jenkins, Rich Allen, but not good enough to get that third spot. So Simon had to do some racing. And then they changed the policy to the top two-ranked athlete just so Simon could be pre-selected. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. I'm sure the the the, the selectors will, will say it was for a different reason. Um so um, yeah, I did the two selection races. I won the first one, and the European champs AJ won, of course. And Lessing didn't race, of course. And I was fifth, and I had to get like top eight to guarantee it. And because I'd won the other one, I got selected. Yeah, that that like Sydney Olympics, hands down, the best race. I mean, mm. like the women raced the day before. Makili she got a, a, a silver medal. The Auss- Aussie triathlon and Australia is just like it's just massive um you know it was one of the only free it was then it was really hard to get tickets for everything it was one of the only free events I remember running I wouldn't say the first I run for a period with Robbo and I was like either he needs to drop me or I need to drop him because I'm getting deafened by Robo, Robo. <laughs> it was like bloody hell. And I think luckily I did drop him yes but, yeah. I mean the crowd like I Like they were like five deep for five kilometers on both sides of the road. It was just like running down Saint George's
0: Street or Macquarie Street. Macquarie Macquarie Street. 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 Yeah. It was.
1: It was just like stand. um, And the race numbers are random. They draw them out of a hat. It doesn't mean anything. It's just your race number. Great Britain got pulled out first, so Simon was number one. AJ number two. I was number three. So I was the third person called onto the pontoon. It was just like it was in. uh, I know the Aussies hate us, but really they love us. <laughs> uh, and just look, looking behind well, me. We're beating you. We, we <laughs> love you and we feel
0: sorry for you when we're beating you. But but when you're rugby and everything starts to become too good, now we hate you again. And the cricket <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but mate, I, I want to move on a little bit then from that Sydney Olympic experience, probably to the most important and best and just the greatest world championship you ever won. And that was, <laughs> that was obviously the duathlon world championships in 2002 in Alpharetta, the easiest, Georgia. Easiest,
1: easiest, <laughs> <on the environment> so <laughs> You forever. bastard.
0: So, for those <laughs> that don't know, this this was uh, this was a duathlon world championships in Alpharetta, Georgia. The rain came down like you wouldn't <laughs> believe. We were running. Crazy through deep, deep water, I was having a reasonably good triathlon year that year, decided to do duathlon worlds, I think there were three or four weeks before the triathlon world championships. That's right. Um, and I thought it would be just a good hit-up. It's a 10K run followed by a 40K bike, draft legal, and then a, a five-kilometre run. And so I, I think I think all of us kind of ran together that first 10K. It was fast, but it wasn't out of control. I can't remember exactly what we ran. But the rain was just teeming down and really torrential by the time we got towards the end of the bike and then we head out on the run. On the way back, so it was an out and back, 2.5K out, 2.5K back, all of a sudden – you and I move to the front, <laughs> and we move in front of all these really well known duathlons. And
1: you can see them, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah cool. all from Belgium. Oh, cool. The Belgians seem to be the dominant force in the duathlon. And, oh, they
1: love and it.
0: you turn to me, and what did you say? Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget it. We we were running flat out. I don't know how quick we were running. I'll I'll make up a number and say we were running a 14-minute 5K. But I don't know what we were running, but it was definitely fast and through deep, deep water. And then you said to me, what did you say?
1: I just remember going, bloody hell. There's two triathletes leading the World Giraffe Championship. Yeah, it, what it is was, going on? It wasn't Bloody Hell, it was some <laughs> other words. But yeah, yeah, it was some expletive, but I won't say. And you were like, shut up, Tim, and just race. <laughs>
0: <laughs> We had about a mile to go, maybe just over a kilometer to go. And here you were yelling at me, we're winning, we're winning. <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, Dude, and then I and then you got me, uh, we turned that right hand corner, you you, yeah. you you had the better kick and, and you took me and uh, you beat me by one second for that duathlon world title i was like you bastard i needed one of those there were
1: no mind games there it was just real because benny van steelen my gosh he He would just he was unbeatable he would like race however he wanted and like i was scared of him i didn't know the gb duathletes and at the race briefing like our team one they were like how are we gonna race and i said i'm gonna try and run with benny see what happens on the bike and just go out real hard and they all laugh at me as if i was stupid and i was like you know what you guys, Mike Trees was the only one that said Tim, just stick to it, and like everyone was afraid of him. So I was like, genuinely like, Greg, what the heck? We're doing this. Let's well, go. Well, i got as <laughs> good
0: attitude as you. I was like, oh, it's duathlon. I have focused <laughs> no. my whole year on racing, triathlon. I'm, honestly, I didn't really care. I mean, it's like I've yeah. said in the no, podcast no, a agree. few times. It's when you remove that expectation and you just it's freeing and you can play and you can do whatever you want. And And I remember just, yeah, getting off and going, okay, let's just run flat out. I mean, they were with us until 2.5K. I think you and I oh, really yeah. were behind them. And then they suddenly slowed up and we were like, oh. And, uh, yeah, okay. just I, I really remember that clearly. It was a real highlight. And then I think it was Cancun World Championships a few weeks later and I remember <laughs> you and I coming out of the water. Do you remember that? Dolphining?
1: Oh, diving. Diving. <laughs> Hey, I yeah, should be doing this. It's a world chance. I think I, I, I'd i lost my goggles. I knew I was having a terrible swim, as much great run shape I was in. It, yeah. it, you know, you can't win the race, but you can certainly lose it in the swim. Um, and yeah, I just, yeah, I do remember that. And it's a lot of dolphin dives, that Cancun, yeah. the yeah. old
0: course. Bloody hell. Every time we jumped up, I'd hear this. Hey! right <laughs> that was hilarious mate and then oh. mate, you've gone on then to win to go to another couple of olympic games with with, with athens and then you, you again qualify for beijing your career is just you've got wins throughout you're, you're all over the place you do have some crazy results as well i wouldn't say you're the you know the hamish carter of the world that seemed to be top five every time you raced, but you you were there or thereabouts with some magnificent wins um athens beijing now going into 2012 was a hometown olympics something that you wanted i mean now for those that don't know you had alistair brownlee and jonathan brownlee probably two of the greatest triathletes we've ever seen in the world come onto the british stage and makes that team a pretty tough team to get on was that still a, a focus for you
1: absolutely i um i think um When the Olympics happened in 2012, I was still ranked top 10 in the world ITU ranking. So, you know, 2010, a silver medal at the World Sprint Champs, Johnny won, um, you know, oh, let me
0: add that. 2010, you also won the high the V. Oh, yeah, world yeah, that was with, with, I've still got the check in the garage. Yeah, was it was like a $200,000 oh. check and against the, the best in the world. I don't know what I it should was. should that actually now, shouldn't I? Really, yeah, see, that's what I mean. I mean, I meant to say that when I said you had a few big wins. Well, that's an obvious
1: but you've thing. had a big, you've had more, you've had the biggest season win, win, win yeah, ever well, didn't you? Well, well I was fortunate, like you
0: said. I think opportunity, talent, and work came at the right time, um, but yeah, and then. 2012 then so take me through that a little bit because you you didn't make the team but like you said your good friend Stuart Hayes who to some degree got you into the sport um <laughs> yeah, make yeah it. and I was yeah, very happy yeah. for Stewie because he hadn't oh, made the an Olympics and, and you'd been to three but but tell me about that process and, and what that was
1: like I think um by then when I say it was it, it was very professional I don't mean sponsorship and prize money and appearance fees and you know commitments in terms of uh, what we had to do for the federations and outside of the Olympic Games Great Britain was one of the most successful countries ever I think we may have won more ITU world champs than any other nation maybe maybe not um but we weren't we weren't crossing the line and winning medals at the Olympic stage and that's what our funding you know and it was a you know there were, was a couple of million pound budget for the four years um so unfortunately um they said you know home olympics we really need to you know kind of like we really need to to to, to, to try and you know transfer these world titles european titles and consistency into an olympic games medal um yeah i i was ranked top 10 in the world i think sydney itu twenty. 2012 I think I got top 10 I think I got eighth or sixth in San Diego so I was there or thereabouts Johnny would beat me Al would beat me when they would race but I was you know top 10 in the world any other country they would have selected me unfortunately I didn't always make the lead group but I was strong on the bike so I'd drag people up and basically the federation decided I was too much of a risk dragging people up so they decided to select a domestique and I said no that's not for me You know, how can, you know, Javier Gomez, he can't have a domestique. Yeah, Alistair and Jonathan can. Um, You know, Simon Whitfield, he can't have a domestique, but, you know, um, these guys can. Um, So I said no. So, yeah, it was Madrid World Cup, which I didn't actually finish. um, That's when, um, because Will Clark and Stuart Hayes were racing for Jonathan in the Olympic selection race while I was racing outright (laughs) to make it. So, unfortunately, um, yeah, they selected a domestique, Stewie Hayes. Um, did he impact the race absolutely not would they have still got first and second uh, first and third absolutely I think the women was more gutting because Helen Jenkins had two domestiques Um, and I do think you miss kind of like a you miss some younger talent or you know that that x factor what if two years you know I was still 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 doing well so yeah it was a bit of sweet thing and Mm -hmm. ultimately that's what really made me turn to to 70.3 and um, moving to America early 2013 and, and eventually, you know, racing Ironman. Yeah, but yeah it's a, I mean, I, it's I, I was all into that. It's an interesting discussion,
0: isn't it? It's an interesting discussion, the domestics and the, and, and you, you can kind of have some. I don't know if empathy is the right word, but for the, these sports directors that are basically, like you said, working with these multi-million dollar, you know, funding and told, we yeah. need medals, make it happen. and uh, Literally. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and, you know, and so then they've got this, you know, this golden ticket with Alistair and Jonathan Brownlee, the, these, these brothers that have just, you know, stormed onto the world stage. And it's basically don't screw it up, <laughs> you know, it's like and, yes, and unfortunately you're the one that, you know, pays the price for that kind of a mindset and and look, you're not the first one to miss out on Olympic teams, you know, for people that are deserved and this kind of thing and, um, uh, you know, both what Laura and myself had those, you know, you know, I was number two in the world in 2000 Olympics, Laura had uh, finished second at the World Championships the year before and then third at the World Championships and still missed the Olympics in 04. There's this, it happens a lot. There's a lot of these conversations. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Um, yeah. And and I I agree with you. I think Alistair was always going to win. I think, you know, I I think the way he handled that pressure and everything is one of the great, sporting moments that we had in triathlon i think the ability to handle that kind of pressure and still perform still run that whatever he ran a 2906 or something in
1: in, in uh do most of the work on the bike
0: <laughs> yeah yeah with doing it, swimming and biking like he does um was extraordinary yeah. i mean i feel for you not to have a four-time olympics but i don't ah. know mate. I, I still look at you and i go hang on because The best part about your journey is it was still far, far from over and, and, uh, look, it's still going right now. But my point is that you transitioned then incredibly well to the 70.3 side of things um, with you've got a second and a third. Is that what you have at 70.3? Two thirds. 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 Excuse me. (laughs) Yes, one third behind Jan and Javier and then third (laughs) behind Javier and um, Ben uh, Ben Yeah, yeah. Correct. That's right. Um, And you've won boatloads of 70.3s, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many, but yeah, I'm on a few. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot when you don't know how many. <laughs> no, yeah, and, I, yeah. And
0: so, what was that transition like? Was it, was a in terms of both the physical, like, because I see you as someone who's always been a racer, somebody that just loves to race. Whereas uh, when you start to go longer, it starts to become a little bit more hold back, hold back, hold back, hold back. And I know personally, I struggled with that. And, and even the 70.3s I won, I quite often went, eh it didn't have that same oomph that winning a, a World Cup or an Olympic non-drafting big money race kind of did. did was that f- the same for you or were, did, you know, you transition no
1: problem? No, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 mean, you know, I took my two-year-old daughter and my wife. We moved to Boulder. I'd been there once in 2002 and I took Kelly there for a week at the end of 2012 just to make sure she was happy. We moved there. We, like, emigrated, had a work visa. It was a big risk, started to work with Judy Dibbons, that, that first year, I mean, I say, I always say 70.3 training, not Ironman. So it's very simple. It's not easier. It's simple because, mm. you know, it's, there's not as much of variability in your training. And if you miss a couple of seconds here or there on your goal times, you, you're in the ballpark. So it's good enough. But, and yes, exactly what you were saying. I really struggled with slowing down. With holding consistent power for 90k rather than that up, down, up, down, up, down. Um, And that first year, I was, you know, I was fighting Julie, um, you know, with my philosophy and her philosophy. Um, And um, um, yeah, I mean, I remember I would. often get dropped on the bike in that first year or if I came off with them everyone is expecting me to to show some 28 minute 10k form which you know I've shown in the past and I was running like 120s and Richie Cunningham, Joe Gambles, um, these guys you know they were schooling me on the run and it did take the whole of 2013 and that winter to kind of like you know, start focusing on, on my position, on nutrition, but also just kind of slowing down and fast isn't always better. I remember doing those miles on Monarch, off the bike, running five minute flat and finishing, you know, the last couple sub five. But I was still running 120s, um, you know, off the bike. It, 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 yeah, that first year really. And then, as you said, like, I'm a racer. I love bloody racing. I I, I love it. And I'm used to racing in Hamburg, Madrid, Tokyo. Um, You know, these, these amazing cities at two o'clock in the afternoon, the whole city slows down to watch the professional races. They're live on television in England and in Germany and all of these countries. And I would go to quasi 70.3 in the middle of a theme park in a muddy field at like (laughs) 5am. And I'm going this is not what I signed up for. I know. I, I must admit, I, I, I struggled I, I, with that. I struggled with that whole. <laughs> what's going on?
0: <laughs> yeah. It, it, is a, it is almost a mindset difference too, isn't it? That, that kind of Absolutely. where you are used to all the hype and the the blue carpet of the, I mean, when you Mass leave. conferences. You, yeah, the, you leave the ITU World Series, the Olympic Games, and then you, you start focusing on some of these races. And they're well put on. I'm not judging them for what they are, but. The 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 difference of what the the World Series and all the the hype around them and and the the TV and media to suddenly you're kind of running down a street and there's a golf clap on the side of the road you know and it's like oh Absolutely. I'm kind of uh, you know you mentioned like running down Macquarie Street at the Olympic Games in Sydney and it's oh. to now you're Sorry. winning a race in you know for me it'd be like a winning maybe Lubbock Texas and it's kind of like yeah oh. Okay, I won. Hi, everybody. Like, do I raise my hands? Because there's only eight people at the finishing line. You know, like, I feel like a wanker if I'm throwing my hands in the air. uh, Because, but yeah, it is. It is a different kind of style of racing. What I did love about that style, though, is it did, like you kind of mentioned before, and Hamish Carter mentioned it when he was on the show. When we grew up in the early '90s doing the sport, it was like the Wild West. And it was this sense of real community, you know, that we were all in it together. We were all doing this crazy obstacle course called a triathlon. And we're doing something silly on a weekend. And, and for me, I think doing the 70.3s or even the non-drafting series that I did a lot of in the US, it was very grounding to come back to what the sport is about, the grassroots and, and finishing the race. And in the next half hour, hour, all the age group athletes would come in, everyone asking how you went, you'd ask how they went. And it was a very it's far more festive, whereas, yeah, the, as much as the ITU stuff was very professional, I kind of felt like it was a little removed from the things that I truly loved about the sport. So for me, I loved coming back to that kind of part of the sport. What about yourself?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's totally, you know, um, yeah, once I, I realised, oh, it's not, not 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 Formula One, it's Paris-Dakar. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I, I I you know, I loved it um, and I got to meet all new people you know I'd raced all over the world in the same cities for the last 15 years but it was the same people you know a couple of new people here and there my office our office just moved from city to city well this was new people new experiences new challenges um and you know it was (laughs) these muddy fields these Mm. race briefings with you know a couple of hundred people there um, rules that were different, but they were the same for everyone. Courses that were same for everyone, um, and yeah, no, I, I definitely, I was at the stage where I was, a, I was a bit more relaxed I think um and I was a bit worried because I you know I'd like given up not given up a lot but you know I I basically tried to reinvent myself by by moving to America professionally um (laughs) and I do remember that year in 2013 I, I think I don't know where it was I didn't have a great race and I was in the airport and there was lava magazine and Bevan Doherty was on the front cover I was like bloody legend and I remember reading it saying this up and coming triathlete, Bevan Doherty, is doing well in 70.3. He might <laughs> have a shot at Man. And I was like, if this two time Olympian who has won medals, at world champ, he's been world champion in two, you know, he has won world champion and Olympic medals is called an up and coming athlete. God help me. <laughs> and I was like, is that how is that how America sees ITU? Do they not realise it is the future of Iron Man? It's the future of seven point three. And and um yeah, it was eye opening, but you know, no, I definitely you know, I, I although I've done most of my career doing ITU my fondest memories are racing 70.3 and nine man believe it or not
0: isn't that funny let's fast forward a little bit because i do want to i do want to chat about um brazil in in 2017 um we touched on it earlier but take me through that race mate just look i've i've rated you always as one of the great um, runners of our sport, hands down. And like you said, you've run that, I think it was a 2807 or something you did in a 10k fun. run Tell me, I can't remember exactly. You yeah, 28 2856, but Hail
1: Gabriel Hail Gabriel selassie only beat me by 50 seconds. <laughs> That's right. Only 50 seconds, not even a lap of the track. And, I'll, and, I'll take that.
0: <laughs> I would too, mate. I remember watching that. But but then I've always looked at you, and then I looked at you. Your swim, you and I were probably fairly similar. We'd have days where we we're front pack comfortable other days where we've screwed up whatever we the swim was up and down but
1: you get good we're racers you get good feet the good vibe yeah yeah you're you're chasing for you know the first 10k
0: but but i'd i'd watched your bike you know when you'd come over to do a couple of the minneapolis non-drafting races in, in the u.s and i thought oh you're a reasonable biker but i never thought much of it but and not that's not fair I, I would say you were average. You weren't an uber biker. I wasn't looking at you as one of those guys that's <laughs> going to rip off the front with this amazing bike split. It just, but then you've trained relentlessly with, you said, your coach, Julie Dibbons, and is it Matt Botchel? Who, who's your coach? Yeah, in, Matt Botchel. Yeah. In, in the UK on the bike, to have this performance in Brazil. A seven hour, forty minutes, twenty three seconds. What were the splits, and and just how? What was your mentality on that day? It's just insane.
1: Um. Yeah. I, I think I'm, i I I won my first ever Ironman in 2014, and then I got second in Brazil the year before. Crazy fast time. Brent McMahon went. He won. Beat me by 20 minutes, and he. I got second. He ran. I think he went seven forty five, seven forty four. He just missed the world record by a couple of couple of seconds, a handful. Mm-hmm. Um. So we knew the course was fast. I raced for a Brazilian team. I love racing. I'd raced a lot in Brazil. Um, yeah, I, I, one of my going back to Craig Ball, um, who again was very instrumental in my early career in '98 when I lived with him in France. He actually coached me for two years leading up to Athens Olympics, um, which was yeah my first ever World Cup win. Which you were there, Saint Anthony's, two thousand and three. Um, well, he was actually yeah. my coach then, yeah. and. Um, um he he then left the sport very successful businessman but he wanted to get fit again because he put on 20 kilograms realized he can do triathlon got into time trialing, and he said tim this guy is amazing you need to do a skype with this guy and you need him to coach you on your bike that's that's what you need i was like no way but since it's you anyway i had the skype with this guy matt botchell i was on the skype for him for about two hours and straight away i knew something clicked now i had to persuade julie to work with another coach. Coaches don't often play nicely with other coaches. Physios don't play nicely with other physios. It takes a very special coach. And Julie did a Skype with him and me and had a think about it. And anyway, the three of us started working together. Um, We changed a lot. And um, yeah, we really worked on my pacing, my position. Um, We also worked on my power profile. There were certain areas I was very good at, but others that I was absolutely absolutely terrible at you know the steady threshold sweet spot things like that so yeah it took a, a year and a half but yeah we, we we worked my bike um to the point where um he predicted my bike time using various websites and my training my cda my power my threshold and he was about a minute and a half off the bike time which was 406 in brazil he was he fast or,
0: or slower was he
1: fast he was slower? slower. He, he was slower. <laughs> I know, yeah, I didn't think about it like that, like um, But as as he as he when he started to work with me, he said, "Tim, I've never worked with anyone who races like you do. You you just have that ability to raise yourself from your training, whether it's the swim, the bike, or the run. If I want you to average, you know, three hundred watts, you know, you somehow average three hundred five. You know, and it's the same. You know, you shouldn't be able to swim on, you know." Um, Cam Dye's feet but you know when I feel like I can I can sit on Cam Dye's feet in the, mm. um so um yeah so going into that race I knew I was in I was in phenomenal shape because I trained through St. George for uh, St. George Utah um which is the North American champs and I finished fourth there but Alistair won I think Lionel was second and um Sebi was third and I dropped lots of good bikers on the bike and had a good run, but I totally trained through it and it was three weeks before Brazil. So we knew everything was in the right way. I'd run every race I'd done that year, except for St. George. Um, yeah, so I turned up, I knew the course, so I was happy there. I love racing in Brazil. The team was so supportive um, and I knew it was a fast course. I uh, There were some good swimmers there who just wanted to, to, to swim fast. They weren't worried about the rest of the race. So I got on their feet. It's, it's a fast swim. We swam 44 minutes I knew I had to be first out of T1 onto the bike and just get my head down. Um, yeah, I rode, I think, the first 40K at kind of like 70.3 watts. So for me, that's just over 300 watts. Then I kind of, there were lots of out and back, so I could see they weren't really catching. They played cat and mouse a lot. And while they were doing that, I just kept my head down. Um, it is a fast course. Um, and yeah. I mean, I came off the bike having averaged the power that they wanted me to average you know, about uh, 4.2 watts a kilo. And I felt good. So I ran really hard. And a big out and back, it's like, I think 9K out, 9K back. And then you do two laps of kind of 10K or whatever the rest is, um, two and a half laps. And on the out and back, I looked at my watch and I was like, right. So if I see someone after I've been running a minute, I've got a two minute lead. And I remember going, where the hell is everyone? (laughs) And I think at at that stage, I had like a 19 or 20 minute lead. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow. I, I I really wanted to win the race. I genuinely didn't have a clue what the world record was. I knew it was around one forty-five, 1, no, not 1, 7.45, 7.44. I had no idea what it was. I just wanted to win the race. And I was like, Tim, even if I run, you know, 4.10k pace and these guys run really, you know, like 3.45, they're still not going to catch me. Just Just be confident, slow down, slow down, just stay within yourself. And I ran past the team hotel and there's a guy called Frank, Frank Jacobson who coached most of the team. Um, next level coaching. Uh, he works with Crowe Sanzigo. Absolutely couldn't get a, a more genuine, kind person within the sport of triathlon. And he goes, "Tim, if you can run a 2:48, you're going to break the record." And I was like, "Hey, thanks. Cool. What record?" And like he was like, "The world record." What you <laughs> stupid? And I was like, "Oh my god!" And then that like I carried on running, and I was like. Oh my God. I looked at my watch and my polar, oh, I shouldn't say that my GPS like stopped working. And I was like, and then I looked and I'm running like three ten a K then I'm running like five minute a K. And obviously it was going, Hey, I don't know why it was going haywire. And I was just like, worried, worried, worried. And yeah, like with a mile to go, you know, um, someone I knew there said, Tim, you're so close. Come on, you can break this record. You're going to do it. And I'm like, what is so close in an eye? And it kind of slowed down. What is so close in an eye? Is it five seconds? Is it five minutes? And I was like, okay, keep pushing, keep pushing. And this time I knew my pace had dropped off, but I was still running kind of like round, you know, 4.05, 4.10 a K. And I thought I'm going to turn in the finish chute. And if I'm nowhere near it, I'm just going to walk the finish chute. But if I'm close to it, I'll I'll push on. Turned into the finish chute. And there was the clock was facing the cameras, the media, not me. And I'm like, oh my, Everyone's going, you know, cr- you know, you, you, when you win a race, even, uh, uh, the Brazilians are going Brazilian world star. So I'm, and I just ran as fast as I could, and then I stopped my watch, and I was like 2:44. He said 2:48, and I looked back, and I saw 7:40, and I was like, I don't know what the world record is, but I've run a 2:44 and someone says you have got the world record and I was like oh my god and it was more relief than kind of like I'm the man and yeah it was like (laughs) yeah it was like and I yeah for the next like you know 20 22 minutes while I waited for um uh Carl Buckingham he finished uh um he finished second it was just like wow you know my friends who I had down there were still racing so I was like on my own kind of like just like total kind of what do i
0: do what do i do yeah literally what you
1: know
0: yeah it was uh your manager franco or kelly there your wife there no
1: no 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 by by then um yeah we had two children so yeah Yeah. hugo and matilda so it's just too expensive to fly all the way down brazil is like a it's like a probably like a 17-hour journey from uh uh, boulder um you know franco franco was there the year before um but he didn't come this year that year um so, yeah, no, I was there on my own, but no, when the team finished and, and they all had great races, uh, Fabio Cavella, he was, uh, I think he was eighth and that qualified him for Kona. Obviously in the old school, I, I qualified for Kona. So that was the goal of the team to get as many of us to Kona and we, we'd qualified. Um, Susie, uh, Cheatham, um, she won the women's. So it was great to have a, I didn't know her that well then, but um, she, she then after that race, she started working with my, my bike coach, yeah. um, Matt Botchel um and um yeah no it was it really gave me confidence um and it was great to you know really let you know, julie and matt look at the numbers and say look this is what we said you were going to do and this is what you did this is the training you did when you ran you know that 36k on magnolia road and averaged 410 a k and your average heart rate was 136 we told you you were in great shape you know when i could drop a, an hour at 300 watts in a 200k ride and, and feel good you know they said you know, that, yeah, it gave me the confidence to, to believe that I could, could maybe do something special at Kona in 2017.
0: It's nice when you have that kind of data feedback. Okay. So what did Matt Botchel give you a time that he thought you were going to do in Kona 2017? I know you didn't get to race as we've discussed, uh, but did he give you a time before? No, I
1: don't think we've ever talked. He would have definitely done his math and, and worked it out, but no, I should ask him. I think yeah. it was, um, yeah, I think the, I was swimming real well. So it was to gain, to kind of swim with that lead group and do as yeah. little as possible to stay with that lead group. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, yeah, I think my uh, the big thing that had changed between Brazil to Kona and it showed at the World 70.3s was my run had just really come on. Kind of like the bike work had almost been done for Kona. We were just maintaining with a few top up key sessions but uh, we were really working the run and the swim because we realized you know with Dylan McNeese with um Josh Amberger with Jan with Tio these guys you know you 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 know you had to swim that fast and then you know yeah the world 70.3s gave me massive confidence to my run to you know, finish within—I don't know, like a—I think it was a minute and a half of of um, of heavy. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I was yeah over the moon with that. But um, yeah, Celeri, we'll never know. No, we we, we won't. But it's fun to—it's <laughs> fun for us to go. Yeah, you oh, would have crushed it, and and yeah.
0: you know you would have been the first to break yeah. eight eight hours and blah,
1: blah, blah. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, mate, I, I've we've discussed there's so many things I wanted to – I've got a whole list of things I wanted to talk to you about, but we've been chatting for so much of your time and I know you've got the two little ones. I, we've, we've talked about your team with, with Franco and Kelly and your sponsors and, and Julie and Matt Botchell and, and, and just so many people that you've surrounded yourself with. Uh, Marcus Mahias you mentioned, who I always love to give a shout-out to on this show, just one of the greatest massage therapists and greatest people I know uh, that helped you, you know, Especially after breaking your neck, um, am I missing anybody
1: else in terms of your your team and 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 the support you got you got incredible... No, bit- I mean yeah, I mean John Dennis is a physio I've worked with in England. He flew out to America yearly, but when I broke my neck a couple of times. Um, You know, within our careers, there are so many people that have pivotal roles. Brett Sutton, he gave me the confidence to race ITU. Um, You know, Dr. Nicholas Romanoff, Pose Method of Running, he gave me the pure speed when I was younger. Yeah, we can talk about these people that no one knows, but yeah – you can't name them all yeah. So, yeah thanks
0: and your sponsors have all stuck with you, you you've got a you know obviously
1: on running and uh, is it um you still with specialized bikes and uh yeah still with specialized um yeah no on still with oakley i signed with them in 1998 um wow. when i won junior worlds um yeah um yeah no yeah i've got obviously you know things change wetsuit manufacturers and whatnot but you know that what's really good is is 99% of the time when, when it's inevitable you change brands whether you, you, you get a massive deal or, or they go a different way marketing or you, you they just not you, oh, you just don't have the results that they wanted you know yeah but I love it when, when I meet lots of the guys I used to work with or people I've never worked with but their sports marketing everyone's just so blooming friendly in triathlon you know yeah. there's a guy called Janos who's the head of Scott Global Marketing and he has been for as long as I've can remember and i've never ridden scott he used to work for bmc i've never ridden bmc we always go for a bike ride in kona we always have a breakfast and it, it, it's a sport like that in, in track and field you don't get like mo going out with an adidas rep or a no, you know yeah, a, yeah, an yeah. On rep. you know it, it's, a, it's a, it is a community-based sport and you know i'm 42 now It has been and will always be a mass. it will be my life, my family's life, triathlon. Look at, you know, look what you're doing now, how you're you're giving us the ability Uh, to share these stories.
0: Reconnecting with them. I also see that you're, um, one of the sponsors of my show is uh, Athletic Greens that I'm using every morning too. You, 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 You paired up with them this year?
1: That's right. Yeah, no. Yeah. yeah, I mean Andrew in Beijing. Uh, he's the guy I've been dealing with. Top guy, an Aussie. Yeah. Um, I know yeah, Andrew. I, mean, I
0: interviewed him actually when I was working at the the Beijing Triathlon as an age group triathlete. It just happened oh, to be. Yeah, that yeah. And then uh, yeah. So for me, the same. He's a wonderful guy. Yeah. So he got. Oh, in touch yeah, and with the product. Went, I mean, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean. Trifle and stress is enough, but when you've got two kids in lockdown, trying to homeschool, it's you have a little you have a little bit too much gin, a little bit too much red wine. I just need to get the the goods you're only as good as what you put in and and I'm a big believer of of athletic screens. It's simple, it's easy, and you know what? It doesn't taste that bad as well. (laughs) It tastes fantastic,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well mate, I did want to chat to you about I'm gonna have to you know the next time we do this. I don't know if you remember, 99, I came and stayed probably a week with you with, with Andrew <laughs> Johns. Every day. <laughs> right? It was your 21st birthday. Every night we went out. I remember going to the Hard Rock Cafe. And, and I don't know, we all said, I think it was Craig Ball, Andrew Johns, myself, whoever it was, there it was a whole group of us. And every night was your, your 25th birthday. And every night you got free drinks or whatever you got. And I never forget, actually, that Hard Rock oh. Cafe leaving going, gosh, that was a 25 pound burger and beer or whatever we had i'm like that's 75 australian dollars i was like yeah. oh my god it was so expensive but that was a fun week i remember. i don't know when that was in 99 oh, that was awesome
1: I just, yeah
0: I, I do remember that i have so be, many yeah I, can't
1: yeah I do remember that that was yeah that was brilliant i
0: i, I know Good i was on time. you for quite a while to get you onto this you know for a chat and, and yeah, i know yeah, yeah a lot of that was just because i did <laughs> want to just Share so many great stories and memories with you. Um, you know, we could go into the details of your nutrition and bodywork and everything else, but I think we're going to just have to do that on a couch after doing a bike ride with a couple of beers in in a year or two um, when all this craziness with the COVID stuff is over. But, mate, been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I know we we kind of glossed over your 2006 you know, world championship that you won. We glossed over the 08 Olympics where, you know, you, you got sick. There's so many great stories that you have to share, but I, I think, you know, being that you've got a couple of kids that you need to get to bed, <laughs> I think I would better let you go. How do people follow you or interact with you these days? I can put it in the show notes, but just...
1: uh is it Tim Is Don? Or, what are you? at least two meters. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no. Uh, try the Don. Try the Don on Instagram and try the Don on Twitter. And I think Tim Don Fast Coaching on Facebook. Uh, mostly Instagram these days. That's what the cool kids and the young kids like. So I try my best, but I'm not. I'm not the best at
0: it. <laughs> uh, uh, apparently, I know. And then anybody that truly, the work they did, The Man with the Halo, look it up. Um, you can find it on your website, timdon.com, but I think it's all over the website, uh, over Google or whatever. Um, the Man with the Halo. Take some time out to go watch it. It's absolutely phenomenal. I think there's there's some documentaries that might come out corny or you know they don't feel fantastic but I watched it and I mate it, it brought a tear to my eye and I'm not the most emotional guy when it comes to stuff like that. So it really was a fantastically well done documentary. Um so anybody that wants to look at timestamps or show notes I'll have them on BennettEndurance.com forward slash media. Um Tim Don, mate, this was absolutely fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks buddy
1: hey no no thanks for having me and yeah no yeah always good to chat triathlon and yeah especially someone who's been around as long as i have (laughs) longer (laughs) (laughs) longer
0: i know mate it's been a real pleasure thanks everybody for listening tim just stay on the line for one second and uh we'll finish up here buddy thanks mate